0: Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is best-selling mystery novelist Elizabeth George, whose book about writing, Mastering the Process, has just been issued in paperback. Elizabeth, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: So we talk about process a lot on this podcast but not as much as we're going to talk about it today because this whole book is about process. Um but I want to start with something that that all novelists know about but a lot of our readers maybe don't know about and that is something that we all call the editorial letter. Tell us about your oh, yeah. first <laughs> tell us about your first editorial letter and how that kind of in a way led to this book.
1: Sure, sure. Well, my first editorial letter from uh, from my first editor, Kate Mizziak, was nine pages long. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the nine pages comprised 22 paragraphs and the 22 paragraphs comprised nothing but questions. <laughs> and this was on a book that was only about 300 manuscript pages. So, um, there was no advice from Kate on how to answer these questions. She just told me that in the body of the novel, they had to be answered mm. in some, you know, some way or another. Um, so to so obviously to do that, I ended up lengthening the novel quite a bit. I actually think I had to add about a hundred pages to the book by the wow. time I had dealt with everything that she needed to know. So uh, that is something that I did not want to uh, go through again. So I took a look at a closer look at her questions, and I decided that essentially she was asking me mostly about um, about characters, and there were things that she wanted to know about the characters. Mm-hmm. So and and also about place, she would ask for more specific. Um, description of the place where the book was set so what I decided to do was to do some stuff in advance so when I came to my second novel I thought well so she's asking about characters so let me create all these characters in advance so that I will in somehow in the novel have answered all the questions that she might have and let me also uh, do a little bit more work on, on place. And so I had uh, been to the place, I always go to the place anyway, uh, where the novel was going to, going to occur. But what I did is I created a map for myself and I looked at the, uh, the building and I looked at the surrounding areas that, that I had seen. And so then when I wrote, that letter, my, I mean, that uh, book, my second editorial letter was not as long, but there was still, I think it was two pages, nine paragraphs. Um, uh, And so I thought, well, okay, she's asking for a little bit more. And it seemed a lot to have to do with place again. So for the third novel, it was a, a book that took place at a British private school, uh, or what they call an independent school, not not a public school, as Eaton and Harrow are concerned, yeah. but a, yeah. uh, a an independent school um, that we would look at as a boarding school. And so I created that whole boarding school. I wrote a prospectus for it, et cetera, did the characters. And uh, she accepted that book without any editorial letter at all. She just said, it's ready to go. Yeah. So uh, so that was uh, my, that's my story about dealing with editorial letters. And I suffer from the A student syndrome. So I was <laughs> A, and that means as few questions from the editor as possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, we're gonna. You, since that time, you've sort of developed a process, which is what this book is about, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a lot. But I'm but I'm curious about that first book before that editorial letter. What what made you want to write a book? What what was the what was the journey that led you to that moment of having a 300 page manuscript?
1: Um, it was. I, I know. I always wanted to write. And, um, I was a high school English teacher at the time and at the time of writing that book as well, that first book. And, uh, so, but I never knew exactly what I wanted to write. Um, I had done, uh, short stories. I had written a, I'd written a novel when I was in high school. I had written screenplays, abysmal poetry, um, (laughs) but I, uh, I wasn't really sure exactly, you know, where my interests uh, uh, were going to lead me. And then I was given a class to teach while I was still a high school teacher, and it was and it was the it was called the mystery story. These were in the glory days when they used to have electives in high school. And uh, so to uh, to. Learn, you know, you when you teach something, you have to deconstruct it and figure it out how you're going to approach it. And to do this, I used Dorothy L. Sayre's uh, lengthy um, essay called The History of the Mystery Story, mm-hmm. and that was what I uh, based the class on. After a few years of teaching the class, I began to think I could probably do one of these novels myself, yeah. and so that led me into, uh, into doing a crime novel. And what I discovered in doing the crime novel is it gave me the, um, the, I guess I'd call it the safety net of having a natural through line. A crime occurs and by the end of the novel, the crime has to be solved. Right. And so that was kind of a security blanket for me.
0: So I, there've been lots and lots of books written about writing and about the writing process, but this is the first one I've ever come across where you really take us, step by step through the way that you write a novel um, which I thought was absolutely fascinating and you actually do it you, you use a particular novel um, which the reader of this book can have read or cannot have read it doesn't doesn't really matter um, and, and take us through that process why why did you want to to write about writing in that really sort of specific way instead of sort of the more general way that we sometimes see um
1: well, I had crafts. done, I, I had previously done a book on craft, mm-hmm. um, which was called right away. And that book is just, you know, that's about the foundation of, of writing. And um, I realized that a lot of times what occurs is that people get together in a writing group, a critique group, or often are taking a class in creative writing. And there is a, uh, And it's really just sitting around looking at someone's writing and saying what they like about it and what they don't like about it. But what I what I discovered with with as a teacher of creative writing was that unless people had a foundation in uh, in writing itself, in the craft, that um, they really weren't to be very useful as uh, as critiquers, because people would say things like, well, this isn't working for me.
2: Well, yeah. okay, nice.
1: <laughs> you know. So when I when I taught creative writing, I would uh, to do at least um, I six weeks or more just of craft before they ever looked at anybody's writing, and nobody was ever allowed to say this doesn't work for me, mm-hmm. unless they could actually come up with a potential solution. They were not really to identify the problem. Um, anyway. So, so after, um, after a while, I began to think, it might, I talked about my process, but I thought it might be a really um, interesting idea to, uh, to teach a class just in process. And it, it just simultaneously, I was invited to go to teach in, uh, in Italy. And I decided this was the opportunity for me to use some people as guinea pigs to see yeah if i could do something on process and if that would actually work and so what i did is i decided okay well let me take um let me take careless in red because that was the novel that i had easiest access to uh, all of the previous um uh, legwork that i had done all of the research all of the photographs etc and so i'm going to italy I, uh, before I went, I sort of created exactly what's in the book and it works really well in Italy. So then I thought, okay, you know what? Let me put all of this into a book about process and it'll be the same thing. I'll, I will include all of the examples and I'll, I'll include the, with the photographs. I'll include my, you know, the, the rough things that I do. I'll include yeah, yeah. The, uh, the more polished part of, of the book as well.
0: So you, th- there's so much to talk about in this book. But as you mentioned in that first editorial letter that you got, you the two things that really stood out to you were character and and setting. So I'd kind of like to focus on on those two. Um, so let's talk about setting for a few minutes. You like, as you said, you like to travel to the places um, that your book is set. Which I I do exactly the same thing. I am also an American who has written books set in, in Great Britain. So I, I I feel that you are a comrade in some ways. Um, and you write that you look for places that shout story. I loved that, that expression. Yeah. What, what do you, what kind of a place shouts story to you? What does that mean? How do you, how do you feel a story in a place?
1: Well, um, the, it, it, it's sort of an odd thing because I don't actually worry about what the story is, mm-hmm. but I, I look at it as uh, what it is potentially could be. In other words, like it could potentially be the place where a body is found. It could potentially be a place where a dramatic scene occurs. So I'm I'm looking for things like that. And to find those things, I um, I do um, a lot of reading in advance so that I know in the particular area, what exists there. And, uh, and then I discover other things that exist there as well. What I've discovered is that, um, I mean, I, I've always known that when it comes to, uh, you know, having a, a good imagination for place, I am terrible. I, uh, I just, you know, I could never write a fantasy novel. Um, I probably couldn't do science fiction because of the, their, you know, the requirements of place that go with those novels. So I always need to use a, a real place and I need to be able to see that place to get a fully I- fuller idea of all of the sensory uh, sensory details. Um, so when I, to, to use an example from Careless and Reb, well, I, I had read about the Southwest Coast path. You, yeah. you can't read about Cornwall without reading about the Southwest Coast path. And there were various places along the Southwest Coast path that sounded really intriguing to me. And um, I would uh, go to those different locations with the idea, just sort of keeping an open mind as to whether it would be useful to me or not. And in one of the locations that I, that I went to see, I um, I had read about the fact that there was this uh, hut that had been built by the in the I believe in the 19th century the early 20th century had been built by the parish priest uh in this particular little village and it was on the it was just off the southwest coast path and i thought well that sounds sort of interesting it described it you know in 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 the books that i was reading so i went uh to see it and hiked out to it through i remember it was sort of a uh, when i was there doing the research for the for the book on cornwall it was about 32 degrees and the winds were blowing (laughs) off of the ural mountains anyway so uh so I um, hiked through a field of cows, got on the Southwest Coast path, saw these steps down, and took these steps and discovered the actual um, hut that had been built, which is quite a sturdy hut. And um, so I explored it and saw inside uh, what the, you know, there were three benches around the the sides, it was built into the cliff. And uh, there was this heart that had been. Uh, carved into the very back of the hut that you could see it was a large heart you could see it as soon as you walked in and right then i knew okay this hut is going to be in the book yeah. i don't know how and i don't know where but i know that this hut is going to be in the book and so that's what i mean when i say it, it uh things suggest story to me um i you know remember that when I set a book in Cambridge, the very first uh morning I was there, I took a walk along the backs and discovered this uh little island called Crusoe's Island. And when I saw it and and walked walked over to it, I uh realized oh this is where the body will be found. I didn't know who the body was, but I knew (laughs) that's that's where the body would be found.
0: And now you when you come back from your when you're on a research trip, you uh, obviously you take a lot of notes, but you use photography quite a bit too. Yeah. Can you can you talk yeah. about that and about how you use the photographs when you're when you're back home and, and working on the on the book?
1: Sure. Um, yes, I do use photography a lot because I can't really rely on my memory of place, and also because um, I I can't uh, can't possibly capture. Every single one of the details that might turn into telling details of place, mm-hmm. and so wherever I am, I'm taking a lot of photographs. I mean, thank God for the advent of digital cameras because oh I gosh, used to yeah. be doing this with, uh, you know, with 35 millimeter film. And uh, you know, taking roll after roll of film, and then having it developed, only to discover if I'd only moved the camera, you know, a foot down <laughs> the other way, I might have seen more. But with digital, you can just take as many pictures as you want to take. So, um, so what I am doing with those pictures when I get home is uh, first of all, organizing them into, into categories. For example, I take lots of pictures of buildings, uh, especially of houses. And so uh, I, I think of those as the dwellings where my characters are going to live or where, the, uh, where a piece of action actually happens. And so I have these categories and it would be like, uh, we might say houses, churches, markets, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And um, I, I actually put those in envelopes and on the outside of the envelope, it tells me what it, what's contained in there. And then when I am writing, Um, I refer to those pictures for uh, the development of setting. And so what I will have is not only the the photographs, but I'll also have my notes about that place. Because when I'm there taking photographs, I'm also speaking into a, a digital tape recorder. And every day at the end of my uh, at, the, at the end of my adventures in this particular area that I'm exploring, I then type up those notes, right. and then yeah. when I get home, I print them up. So now I've got not only the photographs of the place and what I've read before, but I also have notes about my impressions of the place, and so that that will include the um, the other sensory details besides sight.
0: So as I mentioned this before, like me, you're an American who writes books that are set in the UK. Do you think being from a different country, being a little bit of an outsider, does that give you a different perspective on on Britain, on British life, on British people than than if you were a British writer writing British mysteries?
1: Probably in that um, it certainly allows me to, to notice details that people tend not to notice when they live in a place and are walking around it every single day. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you know, there's there's a reason why it's really difficult for me to write about a place where I live, and it has to do with being able to see the see the details. It's much easier for me to go to a place and uh, and then come back and, and come back and write about that place. Yeah. Um, as far as you know cultural details uh, i work pretty hard at getting those correct i um you know i i can't i don't get everything correct but i've got a really good uh, i have a good i've always had really good um british uh ed- editorial input and yeah, yeah. uh all of all of, i've had just three British editors over my career. And they've all been really terrific as far as um, guiding me if I'm getting something wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I have British friends who will read the book after it comes out. And every now and then something slips through. I got scolded one time because I used the word stairs when I should have said steps because um, apparently one of, one of them is indoors and one of them is outdoors, which I, I did not know. So it, yeah, it's, it's Yeah, great.
1: isn't that funny? But it, yeah, yeah,
0: there's t- those tiny little cultural things that that we wouldn't notice, but it is exactly. nice to have, have people over there looking. And the, so
1: and there's the, there's oh let me you said that there's also yeah. the social the the, uh, the uh, clues to your social class. Oh yeah, because yeah. you know if you say toilet um, instead of loo, or uh, if you say. Um, couch instead of sofa, right,
2: right? You know,
1: these are like things that we wouldn't even think about. You know, people call couches in here in the United States. we you call it a couch? A sofa? I knew somebody called it a davenport, which is indeed, you know, another yeah, kind of piece of furniture. Yeah. But in England, all of these are are social cues yeah. and uh, and and very revealing about uh, an individual's background.
0: Yeah, one of my favorites is whether you put the milk into the cup first or the tea into the cup first.
1: Never
2: been like, sure about that. Yeah.
0: I think if, <laughs> I think if you're a working class, you put the milk in first and if you're upper class, you put the tea in first. I don't you know, So, but yeah, those little things just, they fascinate me. So let's move on to characters now. Cause we've sort of started to move in that direction. You create uh, two documents, which I found absolutely fascinating. One of them you call a, a character prompt sheet, and one of them is a character dossier, which is sort of built from the prompt sheet. Can, can you talk about those those two documents and your process for creating them?
1: Sure. Well, the prompt the prompt sheet well, the prompt sheet <laughs> is uh, is just a list of various categories that I want to look at, but don't necessarily have to look at when i'm creating a character there's certain things that are always going to be in a character analysis such as the character's physical appearance uh the character's uh need, the character's psychopathology those things are always going to be in a character analysis but there's other things that that i might not include if they if they aren't really relevant to the story things like the you know the way they walk or their um well, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head, just like I know I have a gate down there, G-A-I-T, and that's so uh, to indicate how they walk. Um, but there's certain things that are always there. So, so when I'm doing an actual character analysis, I, uh, I start with the character's name, which is has already been determined um, prior to uh, even beginning the, uh, the, the character analysis because I have a list I go from generic names, uh, generic roles in a book to specific names of people who are fulfilling those uh, generic roles to then the creation of the character analysis. And um, as I'm writing this character analysis, I'm doing it always in stream of consciousness fashion. uh, And I glance periodically at my character prompt sheet to see if there's anything that I'm missing that I want that I want to add to the character analyses. And by the time I'm done doing it, uh, doing the whole analysis of a character, essentially I have acted as the person's um, spiritual guide, uh, psychological counselor, you know, I'll think of their um, their their biographer, the the where you know the historian that puts puts them in a particular place at a particular time. I've just sort of touched every single base that I can think of. And, uh, and and what I like about this this particular process is that really it's the only time aside from the creation of the rough draft where I'm I'm, I'm a god I can make these yeah. uh, people anybody anything I want them to be and the only one that's actually created to do anything specific is the killer, yeah. and everybody else uh, is there to not to serve the interests of the story but to serve their own interests and to live their own lives. So when a reader opens my book, what I want the reader to have a feeling of is that um, we're looking at lives that have already been in in progress for quite some time. And those lives will continue with the exception of the murder victim. Those lives will continue after the book ends. I want the reader to feel that way about it. Uh,
0: Well, I think this, this is a book, of course, it's gonna be fascinating to people who want to write. But to me, you know, I I found myself as a novelist looking at at things like your character prompt sheet and and your dossiers and th- and think going back and thinking about my own characters and thinking, mm-hmm. okay, what was their you know, and sort of trying to answer the questions and one of the ones that that I really had fun with was something you just touched on was the core need. Talk yeah. about what talk about a character's core need and how that helps you sort of shape who the character is.
1: Well, you know, core <laughs> needs are what Uh, what drives everyone's behavior, our own behavior, real people's behavior, as well as characters in novels. And so the core need is something that the character is seeking to fulfill. And it can be a variety of of things. You know, it can be a character's um, need to be an A student. That's me. I have a need, you know, my core need is, is perfection, which makes many aspects of my life very difficult, <laughs> but, but it's always been my core need. And the sooner, you know, a person recognizes what's driving their behavior, the, the, the better off they are. Um, you know, a it, it, core need is like similar to, you know, your, um, the the issue that's driving your behavior. For example, a, a young girl who loses her mother uh, at at a very tender age and uh, her need to uh, replace that person to find um, a maternal figure would be something that would then drive the rest of her behavior even though she might not even be aware of it as a matter of fact most people aren't aware of what it is they're you know it's like why am I doing what I'm doing Mm -hmm. I often thought that about uh you know about Donald Trump. I would, I would say to my husband, like, you know, what's really sad is he doesn't can't take a step back, yeah, and uh, and ask himself, why am I doing this stuff? What's going on with me? Um, and so that whole idea of why I'm doing this stuff, what's going on with me, that comes out of the character's core need.
0: Okay. And then the other, so- oh. the, the other character trait that is was one of my favorites. Um, that, that again, I had fun going back and trying to psychoanalyze my own characters and figure this out, is what you call the pathological maneuver. This is yes. not a phrase I had run into before, but, but I love it. Talk about that a little bit.
1: The pathological maneuver is the behavior that is triggered when a character is exposed to the anxiety of not having a core need met. Really, uh, you know, I love to use the example of the Macbeths. Macbeth, um, the there's a lot of you know. Here's how I I taught Macbeth in in school for many years, and um, here's how I've always looked at the play. Some people say this is a play about ambition, and I've never seen it as a play about ambition. I've seen it as a play about manhood, Mm -hmm. and that more than anything else, Macbeth wanted to prove himself a real man. And that's how Lady Macbeth controls him, because over and over again she says, you know, "Are you a man?" Well, my, one of my favorite parts is when she says to him, "What well, quite unmanned in folly." And, and there are many, many references to manhood in, in Macbeth, but I think like one one um, reference to ambition. And because Macbeth's core need is to prove himself a man, and because of the way he's defined manhood, he can only be thwarted. He can only, he can never have that need met. And so that triggers in him the pathological maneuver. And his pathological maneuver is obsession. Because he, you know, goes from one obsession to the next obsession throughout the play, and so um, that that's an example. And additionally, that's really kind of interesting that um, you know, Lady Macbeth, her. I mean, her pathological maneuver is compulsion. So she is, you know, once this crime has been committed, she's not only sleepwalking but compulsively washing her hands. It's just like totally unaware of why she's, you know, what's on, what's going on with her. So the pathological maneuver is is what characters are driven to do when they're not getting their needs met.
0: You you talk about writing about your characters in stream of consciousness. why do, you, why do you think that that helps you develop the characters? Do you think there's something about the physical process of writing that triggers your creativity?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the reasons I do stream of consciousness is that um, my body tells me when I'm on to the right thing. Hmm. And so I'll just be typing along, you know, sort of like uh, whatever's popping into my head. And all of a sudden I will hit a remark that I'm making in the stream of consciousness, and my body feels this surge of energy, and mm. that tells me, okay, that's it, and I will usually write, you know, type into the computer at that point in parentheses. Yes, 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 exclamation point. <laughs> um, and so, writing has always been a pretty visceral process for me. I um, I am triggered by the act of a writing utensil preferably a keyboard or typewriter. I, I did most of my early writing on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. There's something about that, uh, that physical activity of typing yep. that really helps me um, in, at much more than hand, you know, handwriting a manuscript would. Um, for some people it's the handwriting of the manuscript that triggers them, but uh, it's the actual typing that I could never dictate a book ever. No, and me neither. People, yeah. Oh my God, some people do that. I can't even imagine dictating your book. There's no way. But that's what triggers ideas
2: for them.
0: Yeah. I always felt like for me, it's typing too. And sometimes I feel like it's because I'm using both hands, I'm more mm-hmm. likely to be engaging both hemispheres of my brain than if I were just writing with a ah, with a pen or a pencil. I don't yeah, know that's... if that's true or not, but, but, and what you, you very bravely I think put in this book examples of this stream of consciousness writing un, unedited for us to, to sort of see at work. And one of the things you do, which I do also is you'll ask, there'll be questions in these. So it'll say, um, you know, maybe she's a retired school teacher. No, I'm thinking perhaps a delivery person, you know, and you'll go yeah. through several things and then sort of hit on it. And, um, And then sometimes the questions are answered and and sometimes they're not. Right. But I think that's really revealing um, of the way that kind of writing works that that, that you have those questions in there.
1: Um, Yeah. It's sort of, um, it's sort of an organic, it's an organic process, not even sort of, it's an organic process. And that's actually how um, my entire process works. I had to do a, um, a revision one time of a character in, in a book called Deception on His Mind. And, um, my editor had asked, asked for that. And so I wasn't really quite sure how I was going to address myself to it. And she said, okay, here's what we'll do. We will, let's get on the phone together. We'll do this every afternoon. We'll go through every scene that the character is in. And, um, and she would then say to me, okay, here is where you've got a problem. And so then I would say, okay. And she'd just wait in silence while I addressed the problem. Yeah, But, I remember um, reading her a sentence it, it, about this character or in the character's point of view. I can't remember, but I mean, I'm, I read this sentence and she said, she said, um, all right, but I don't see where that's going. And I said, oh, wait, just just wait. I'll, I'll be able to build on that sentence. And that is what is is uh, so important in my writing is being to is being able to build so that um, I'm I, I call it uh, I call it an organic way of writing that I and I tell my students give yourself a place to go with your writing for example I like this is the example I use if you say you know Mary slammed the door okay she slammed the door maybe that'll help you a little bit but if you say Mary slammed the door for the third time that day you have more to work with now. And so I'm always looking for the sentence that's going to give me the most to work with. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You write about ways of creating or heightening tension in a scene to to create greater drama. And as I was reading about that, I immediately sort of flashed to the way that filmmakers use music to do that Mm -hmm. exact thing. Tell us about your writing environment. Do you write in silence? Do you write do you play things in the background? Do you like the window open? I mean, what what works for you in terms of sort of triggering these ideas?
1: Um, you know, I uh, I write in silence. Um, I would not be able to have anything like music on, mm-hmm. or um, certainly not the television. I I know somebody who has the television on very low in the background, oh, and that's like she needs that to oh. be right. But I need to I need it to be quiet, or um, if there is if there is natural ambient sounds that does not bother me like here in my office i can um i can hear um the dimly the sound of the freeway going through seattle and it's just white noise it doesn't bother me but interestingly enough what also doesn't bother me is like a dog barking does not bother me, um, or even a leaf blower doesn't bother me. I suppose with leaf blowers, I know it's not going to be there that long, but um, so those are, I mean, especially dog barking or birds twittering or whatever, um, those kinds of things don't bother me because they're sort of like ambient things. But if my husband (laughs) who has, he's deaf in one ear so he has a habit of talking in a very, very stentorian voice when he's (laughs) on the phone. Um, If we are, if he's with me when i'm working it's you know he has to like leave the house to have this and frequently it's like he's not close enough he's still too close so that kind of thing um but also if the if the conversation is like a bunch of people talking at the same time and i can't really distinguish what they're saying that doesn't bother me either
0: yeah yeah so I mean, obviously the idea of writing a book about writing and of being a creative writing teacher is that people can be taught to write. People can be taught to paint. People can be taught to compose right. music. But even though you can be taught to write and paint and compose music, even if I put in my 10,000 hours, I'm never going to be Jane Austen or uh, Van Gogh or Mozart. What? How much of writing can be taught and how much of it is just you're either blessed with it or you're not?
1: Yeah, well, I think all of the the entire craft of writing obviously can be taught, just like if I always use the example of um, of sculpture, and I always say that you know, if if you had a block of uh, a block of marble and you decided you wanted to be a sculptor and you didn't know anything about being a sculptor, and you started banging away at, <laughs> at this piece of marble the likelihood of your coming up with the pieta is going to be very remote. So there is a process of, of, uh, not only is there the the craft, the, the, uh, the, the tools that you use in sculpture, there is also then the process that you follow as you're doing this. And then there is ultimately the finished product. But in all cases, you do also have to have some natural talent Mm -hmm. but i the the main thing is that you know i i always say to students look if you have talent passion and discipline you are going to be you're going to be published Mm -hmm. if you have talent and discipline you're probably going to be going to be published if you have passion and discipline there's a chance you would be published the one thing that you must have is, is discipline.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: uh, so the more you can add to that basic discipline, the better uh, chances you have. So, you know, discipline and talent, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Um, I've always loved writing. And I think that, um, you know, I've had a facility for language, the English language for a long time. But I also was an enormous reader and have been for my entire life. Uh, which I also think is really important because a lot of writing is osmo- osmosis.
0: Yeah, yeah. At one point, you use one of my favorite words, um, which is serendipity. Can you talk about the role of serendipity, both in your research and in your writing?
1: Um, yeah, in my research, it is that moment when I come across something completely unexpected that is going to have a uh, is going to have an effect on what it is that I'm creating. My favorite serendipity, uh, serendipitous experience happened on a train ride between. Um, um, where was I? Oh. Um, milan and i was going to florence or was i going no i think i was going to padua and um sitting next to me on this train was a gentleman who who was it turned out to be an englishman and he was on his way to venice where he goes every every year And we just got into a conversation and I'm always interested in what people uh, do or what brings them to where they are. So I got in this conversation with the gentleman and at at this particular point in the book that I was writing I knew what the means of murder was but I had no idea how the the killer was going to put um, his, his hands on this particular means of murder. So I'm talking to this guy in the train And he tells me what he does for a living. And, oh, my God, (laughs) it's exactly what I need for my means of murder. So that's what I mean with serendipity. You just never know um, when something is going to happen or uh, you're going to come across someone who's going to absolutely turn your entire uh, book around and give you exactly what you need.
0: Yeah, yeah. I find for me that happens a lot with historical research too. I'll be, I'll be trying to find out, you know, a, a detail for a character or something. And what I end up finding out is just way better than anything I would have ever had the courage to make up. You know.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so a lot of writers tell me that they don't like to read other people's novels while they're working on their own novels. Um, and, and I'm curious how you feel about that. But I'm also curious about, you know, you were. You were part of a long and and glorious tradition of British mysteries um, that, that goes back all the way to you know the woman in white and and through Agatha Christie and everybody else. What what writers influence you, and and what have you learned from from them that help you in your process? When I when I
1: think about what writers influenced me and have helped me in my process, the, the writer that immediately uh, leaps into my mind is, um, is the late John Fowles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I loved John Fowles' uh, novels. I thought he was, you know, he took chances and, and that's what I really liked. That's what I learned from him. I learned that um, sometimes something works and sometimes something doesn't work. But what you do is you just, you know, you keep moving forward. So he had some novels of, that had enormous success, um, you know, a most most famously probably the the French Lieutenant's Woman, or as the British would say, the French Lieutenant's Woman.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so that was probably his, his biggest success. But, um, but The Collector is uh, yeah. a, a fabulous book that was turned into a film with Terence Stamp. And um, it was... Uh, it's a it's a wonderful sort of a kidnap and imprisonment novel. And then he had lesser novels that, for example, um, A Maggot, where I read that and thought, you sure as hell better have some explanation at the end of this book. <laughs> and he did. He actually yeah. did, which is yeah. great. But he was always putting it out there. So that, that's what I learned from him. What I learned from my absolute, probably favorite British writer, uh, the late John Le Carre, was um, that you can grow as a writer if you continue to write and you don't fall back on, you know, rest on your laurels. You know, when I look at John Le Carre's earliest work to, uh, to something like The Constant Gardener, uh, there's just no comparison between the two. He grew over those since the 60s until his death. Just grew tremendously as as a writer. So I I always get so I've read all of John Fowles' books and uh, and John Le books as soon as they are out in uh, in uh, as soon as they were out in uh, in hard copy. I was like, oh, gotta have it first person at the bookstore to get it. Yeah. Um, the I, oddly enough, I don't read uh, a lot of crime fiction. Um, they're at, really at any time, although they're crime writers that I really, really like, and I do read their books. I, I read um, all of P.D. James's yeah. books, uh, I've read a, 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 any number of uh, Dorothy L. Sayre's books. But um, more recently, I read the work of uh, the sort of incomparable Tana French, who is right. in Ireland, whose books I really, really like. Um, but most of the time, what I'm doing is I'm just reading other novelists. Right. Um, and, uh, and mostly that's because I love to read. I can't imagine like not reading a novel or really an, a really good nonfiction book while I'm working. I, I just can't imagine doing that.
0: We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but we hope they'll give our listeners a little something to think about and a little insight into you and your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing?
1: I'm just um, trying to think. For some reason, egregious is is Mm -hmm. stuck in my mind.
0: What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing?
1: I hate to encounter the misuse of, oh my God, the, the misuse of um, disinterested. Mm. That makes me insane.
0: Where is your favorite place to write?
1: Well, probably probably my office,
0: mm-hmm. I think. Where could you never write?
1: I think I could never write in a place where there was loud music of any kind.
0: To so what rule of grammar do you pay least attention?
1: Oh, what rule of grammar? I will say that these days you're gonna know a hell of a lot more than your copy editor.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: They tend not to. Okay, which rule, of pro- it might be, it, it might be prepositions at the end of a sentence. Okay, yeah. That, that's probably what it is.
0: What was the first book you remember reading?
1: Oh, the first book I remember reading. Well, what immediately popped into my mind were these little biographies that we had at the back of our classroom when I was Mm. third grade. Um, And they were religious biographies. I went to Catholic grammar school. And I can remember this biography of uh, St. Teresa. The little flower that I read and reread and reread. What's oh, funny great. is that right. I associate I associate that book with tuna fish sandwiches
2: <laughs> because
1: that's that won't even go into why.
0: What are you reading now?
1: What am I reading now? I am reading the book, the novel Hamnet.
0: Oh yeah, that's, that's it's almost at the top of my to read list right now. Uh, what book would you like to have written?
1: Oh. Okay, I'm going to say what first popped into my mind is To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will?
1: The great literary novel.
0: <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you?
1: I went to that place. Oh,
0: this has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Elizabeth George, whose book Mastering the Process is available wherever books are sold. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. This is great.
0: Inside the Writer Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro.fm supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to debut novelist Shelley Nolden about her new novel, The Vines. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.